have a really interesting conversation continuing our discussion of you are a racist and our focus today is going to be on decentering whiteness it is so i'm just not going to say anything <laughs> no <laughs> what the news? <laughs> uh you should say stuff <laughs> I, should, I should say things you should say all say all the things I should say, say all well, the things something so, like that yes yeah how you been i've been good it's been a busy two two weeks yeah, months? we took an unintentional hiatus. Big and big hiatus. Can't even talk. Big hiatus. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, now we're just kind of jumping back into this. This is urgent stuff, and we don't want to leave it too long. So. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of things going on. How's life going? Life is busy. Got my mom staying with me for the month. Yeah. You know. That's exciting. Doing the family thing. Yeah. <laughs> Trying yeah. to be a, do- a dedicated daughter. Yeah. Hey, mom. That's exciting. <laughs> we just found out that we're having a girl. So baby number three. Yeah, Excellent. that's exciting. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how that all works out. My my daughter is excited. My son doesn't know really much to do anything yet. He's only a year and a half. But yeah, so that'll be happening in February 11th. So it's exciting. So family well, life is good. Yeah, life is good. So, so let's take a look at the news. So today I saw a really interesting article in the Detroit Free Press um, that kind of called out uh, what we do, Erica, in, in higher education, but really where the onus and a lot of the burden has been placed. And so the article led with the headline, Black Women Bear Largest Burden in Student Debt Crisis. Um, And the the key statistic is that uh, an African-American woman completing college has 56% more debt than that compared to a white man. Right. Right. And so... I mean, it's a shocking reality that I live. Like, yeah. I literally came out of undergrad with $60,000 in debt and added another 30000 to finish my grad program. Um, and coming here to the academy and seeing my colleagues who, who make actually less than I do in salary but have more take-home money because they're not paying $670 a month like I'm paying yeah. to cover my student loans. Um, and it's a significant life difference, right? And maybe I guess we have to ask this question, what is it that we're doing, and what ways are we participating in this in the academy, and how do we change that? Yeah, I was really, I mean, it didn't surprise me when I saw the article pop up today, uh, in, in, but it, it's one of those things of, okay, so we know we have a student loan crisis, mm-hmm. and the cost of educating and the cost of higher education is increasing, um, and the, the burden is being placed more and more on the student. And as you, as you expand access to higher education mm-hmm. and expand um, and try to remove the barriers, you're still not, we're still not addressing some of the, the systemic structures mm-hmm. of how do folks get here. And because we live in an individualized right. capitalistic framework of you pay your way through, right. and if you're going to higher ed, that's not a right, it's a privilege, right. right? Even at a state school like the one that we work for, you still have to pay that, right? And, and so the onus is on you to find the money. And when you have historical barriers of, and a lack of, well, gener- you don't have generational, generational wealth, wealth, right? Yeah. Um, that, that, that becomes problematic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see this so clearly and when I compare myself to my colleagues. You know, I have one colleague who I love so dearly and would paint this narrative of, well, you know, I don't have so much student debt because I was really financially responsible as a student. I had low rent, I didn't buy lots of new stuff, and I didn't, um, do a lot of extravagant things, but when it come when we start asking more questions of my friend, it found it turned out that her parents had a significant contribution to her undergraduate like tuition, so right. their parents could pay tuition outright. When I look at myself, when I look at my other black friends, and when I look at working class people in general, 
I am not seeing them having the same access to that generational wealth. And I come from a middle class family background. Like we didn't see ourselves as we, we saw ourselves as solidly middle class and yet when it came to asking for that tuition, it was a no go. Yeah. Right? It was a no go. Um, and I remember thinking all my life that because I have so much debt, it's because I'm not responsible. <laughs> you know, right. it's like something I did wrong. Um, or it's some lack of financial planning that I had. And keep in mind, I had 80, about $80,000 of student debt plus another 20000 in credit card debt. Right. Because in grad school, you have to finance your own conference travel. you got to survive. you got to survive. You have to pay for the gap between semesters. So right. when the fall, I mean, when the winter or spring semester ends and the, the fellowship money stops, <laughs> right. what do you do for the next few months? Didn't have family, didn't have a partner, no one could help me cover those costs. Went straight on the credit card, and now I am in debt in ways that my colleagues, I don't see them carrying the same level of burden. Yeah, and, and, and we talk about education being a liberatory experience, and when the cost is crushing, that's right. it's not, right? That's and right. so when you have, and, and I think about, and, and you know, for some reason, I think it's because I'm a, I like to get into politics, I always take it in this mm-hmm. way, but when you have folks like Elizabeth Warren and um, some of the other folks that are championing, kind of trying to find ways to eliminate or erase some of the debt, and the challenge behind that is saying, well, I got rid of my debt. I paid mine down. I made good choices. Okay. It kind of gets back to that thing that we talked about last time. And you and I um, did a guest lecture last night in class where we have a, a, the, the want to think of things as an individualized right. narrative, right? So we are taught societally wide mm-hmm. that your success is driven by your ability to be good, to push. And, and there, as long as you work hard and put your mind to it, you can succeed. Right. Right with and and so, that framework is a framework of enacting white supremacy mm-hmm. on some level. And I think, um, for white folks in general, I think that that's difficult because then you get all these self doubt pieces in there too. That's in this. Of, you kind of mentioned it too. Of, am I doing something mm-hmm. wrong because I'm in this position and I work hard and I do these things, but also casting that shadow of I paid off my debt. I worked four jobs, mm-hmm. and why can't you do it? Right. Exactly. Not understanding the ultimate amount of other barriers that exist even if you are working eight jobs That's right. trying to pay it off what kind of life is that anyway someone who works eight right. jobs it's not exactly and I mean you have a whole uh, set of life choices that are delayed you know whether you can buy a house or whether you can live out live on your own or support a family these are all questions that I mean a lot of us as are of my generation the millennials included but also african-american we're having to face those questions like what what are these life milestones that we're pushing off because we can't afford it yeah. We, can't even, we can't even imagine it. Um, and for me, it adds another layer of disillusionment, right? Because, you know, you follow that narrative that says, if you do everything right, you're going to be fine. And then you find out how deeply not fine you are. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're at crisis level. You know, for me, it's, it's, you know, I always feel ashamed to say it, but at the end of every month, I have like 100 to $50 in my bank account. And I make good money, and I'm a tenured faculty, but the vast majority of my money is going to debt. Like, right. paychecks upon paycheck upon paycheck is going to debt. And it seems like there's no way for me to climb out of that, um, and and society does not is not offering us a solution to that, right? right? And thinking about the bigger ways, like it, this affects me as a black woman, but white working class people, white people in general, are also affected by this. But we like to paint this narrative that again, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or there's something dif- dysfunctional about you that you can't um, solve this problem, and so we ignore all the structural solutions that are that are available to us. Um, this is where I think, you know, if we frame it as a kind of white supremacy, this is where white supremacy 
just harmful to everyone, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, white supremacy in, in general is harmful to everyone, but we don't always think of it. We don't always think about the ways that it destabilizes all elements of, of society. Right. We get this illusion that, you know, if I succeed, that's, the system is working well, but it's not, um, you know. Because often my success is at the cost of other people, right? Exactly. And so I was having this conversation with a, a student the other day who's probably going to be listening to this podcast because it's part of their assignment, which is awesome. Thank you. For those that are faculty that listen to this, for you're assigning this, that's awesome. Great to hear. Uh, but we were talking about um, this, this concept of what meritocracy is and capitalism and the way it's designed. Right. You know, as a systems person is looking at systems theory, the system does what it's supposed to do. If, if we are truly able to, to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and everyone does that, the system's not really designed to, to let that happen. Right. There's the system is designed is you know not to pull a Bernie Sanders line out to have a one percent owning right. most of the wealth where the rest of us fight over, right. you know the the what's left. And so, at what cost does it does it have for someone to be able to to pay off the debt? How much stress is is, is on that? And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, I read a study, I don't know if we, it was brought up in our discussion, and then I, I read it or. But anyway, it was about the concept of trauma going from generation to generation, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so there's been this interesting research that where your family members, your grandparents and parents, pass trauma down genetically, right. right? And so if you have, um, if you grow up in a minoritized, with a minoritized identity that has experienced racial trauma mm-hmm. because of the oppressive system that gets passed down, mm-hmm. And then you yourself, even even in 2019, mm-hmm. where there are allegedly more freedoms now, but right. you have that trauma, plus you have the, the stressors of trying to be able to do this mm-hmm. and succeed. And it, it, it's just, I think about that and the, and the ongoing pervasive new elements of trauma that are being right. persistent within the community in the United mm-hmm. States. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of the conversation we were having last night, and I was telling the students, you know, the reason why, why I do this work is because I literally carry the burden of racism in my body, right? Right. And thinking about this intergenerational um, piece, you know, my father was a diabetic. He died at 44. My mother um, had cancer. She died at 42. And when I look at my life and think about the path that I'm on and the stressors that I carry just trying to survive the world, trying to survive work, racism, other kind of issues, um, I feel that burden in my body, which I think is showing up the, the stressors, right? So having yeah. lost my parents really early, and then me, I'm on the same path with my health issues, like right. at the same age that they were when they were dealing with certain kind of chronic illnesses. And, um, you know, thinking about that and then still trying to succeed, right? So. We put an injury, like we said, we put this individual burden on someone, okay, pull yourself by your bootstraps without even also realizing how the individual is carrying history, (laughs) history from their family and from their community um, that's caused by the society um, in their body. And even at the individual level, I'm not going to be able to run as fast or move as fast or um, operate in space as fast and as agilely as my white colleagues are. Agilely, I like that word. I'm I'm making it up. We're just going to go ahead and make that word. I just think, you know. It's a perfect word. <laughs> I made up some great words today. It's We're been doing awesome. It. We're doing it. So, yeah, I, 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 I wonder too. Um, you know, in thinking about health and and the other systems that exist outside of education, you know, how much of that when folks don't really think about access to healthcare when they mm-hmm. debate about healthcare issues, mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and I think that's such an interesting fact, you know, in, in our society, we, we have alleged democracy, we are a republic mm-hmm. in theory, and you have folks that make decisions, and we do majority rule on, mm-hmm. allegedly, again, except for a presidential election where you <laughs> a weird system. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, it is interesting to think about, again, that nature of, well, I don't want to lose this for me. Mm-hmm. I want to put this, and, and I think that, again, back to that frame of, I need to take care of me, mm-hmm. and I'm only as good at, I'm, I'm doing my stuff, and so right. therefore just let me be, is a very interesting nature, I think, that is, is ingra- ingrained in, in kind of this white supremacy piece, mm-hmm. even though white supremacy then also does this wanting to, to build a tribal mm-hmm. focus or a collective focus of white folks That's that... Right. Freedom to, to discriminate, to freedom to, to, to harm and hurt, right? And, and what's so crazy about it still, though, is when we look at those groups of white people, they're also affected by the laws and regulations that they refuse right. to create. And so this health crisis or education crisis or whatever it is, housing, jobs crisis, like these are policies that people are putting in place with a self-interested lens, but they're tanking the whole country, the whole planet, literally. And how can who, how can anyone survive in that? So... Um, I would like people to really start thinking about that, the connections that we have. Like, we're interconnected in these ways. And along with that, if we're interconnected, it can't be an individualized response. It's right. got to be a collective, seeing each other's humanity, seeing each other's um, interests, you know. Um, I love my colleague, o- Dr. Otrude Moyo. She always reminds us of the Southern African philosophy called Ubuntu, which is, I am because you are. And I remember the struggle that my white students had with this concept because it's like, well, I don't care about who you are. I have my own space over here. I have my neighborhood. I have my city. I have my community. And why should I care? And like they literally asked us that question, why should I care about who you are and what you need? Um, which is an interesting place for me because it's like, it's obvious, but how do you, how do you encourage someone to start developing that sense of care and concern for other people? Yeah. Um, and maybe that's part of the work of dismantling white supremacy. Yeah. As well. Yeah, and I, but I also kind of wonder too. You know, you and I before we started today, we're talking about um, the success stories that That's exist, right. right? And so I think a lot of times, um, oftentimes, to defend our current system structure, um, there are success stories that get pointed That's out. You know, right. Barack Obama, That's great right. example of a success story. Exactly. Tyler Perry, who's right. in the news right now, great example of a success story. That's well, right. he can do it. He's built his own thing. He's been shunned by, mm-hmm. according to him. It's been shunned by Hollywood, right. and still has built his own studio, right? That's like right. that was been one of the largest yeah. studios in the country. Yeah, um, yeah. We get these in, we get these individual success stories. I mean, Tyler Perry, Oprah Winfrey, right? We get these these images of people who, hey, look, they they were able to transcend the right. barriers of the system. I read a really great post on the internet. I followed this group called Kinfolk, Kinfolk Collective, yeah. and the author Lasha, who's the, um, who runs that page. She wrote a really great piece about Tyler Perry's success, getting us to think about, okay, this is a certain kind of success that we celebrate, but okay, when he when he makes his studio and makes all these millions of dollars, is that considered collective transformational success for, for our entire community? And she said, if he's able to pay a, a black actor a million dollars, what does that do for the vast majority, or, or the vast numbers of black people who are making $17 an hour and right. don't have enough money in their bank to make it to the end of the month, does does that moment of success for that one person translate into transformational success across our community? 
Um, and as black people, we're always torn because we were sold that model of, well, success looks this way, like right. having a lot of money, having a lot of power, being able to move in the world and dress in the finest clothes and drive the best cars. But in a lot of ways, that's a white supremacist model of success because it's not a, it's not a collective. It's not a, I've, I've stepped up to this level so that I can um, radically transform the community. Like Tyler Perry, I think it's very clear, he does support black actors. He does support people in, in the industry who are people of color, giving them jobs, giving them access, giving them opportunity. But again, on a very vast transformational scale, are we seeing that kind of success story? Right. Um, yeah, and I think that you also saw similar backlash with Jay Z, mm-hmm. right, in the NFL, oh, right, yes. and so, yeah. and 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 I don't want to get into it because I'm not as well versed on what exactly went down in some mm-hmm. of the narrative, but it's really fascinating to see someone like Jay Z buy into right. an impressive structure right. as the National Football League has been, right? right, and it's hard because. I like football, mm. and I don't want to. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One because of the damage to the body, but also because I think most of the bodies now are black and brown, right, right? That are playing, and That's then right. the way that the athletes are treated when they mm-hmm. do s- try to stand for something, right. um, and at what cost, That's you know. Right. And so, when you have someone who's high profile like that, who has in the past been a, a voice mm-hmm. for. Um, black America on a level mm-hmm. and and now kind of trying to play this play the game mm-hmm. essentially right and so at what cost does that happen and and what is he giving up to do that I That's think right. is really a fascinating thing yeah well this Kinfolk Collective website one of the things that struck me the most about her post was is what we're really doing creating a new generation of overlords right mm-hmm. we're putting black faces on that one percent rather than challenging the system in which the 1% exists. So Jay-Z, for example, moving up into a deeply racist structure and being the head of that structure is success because that's the narrative told to all of us. But when you look at the structure, like you say, like black bodies and then the commodification of those black bodies, like down to like the wingspan of your arm and the, the, you know, how far you can jump and like. It is unreal when you look oh, at the combine and what oh, they talk about when they talk about stats. I tell you. Like, as a historian, I think about what we were doing when, when, when we were bringing folks over from Africa in the right. slave trade, like, and looking at the body That's and looking right. at that and saying, and judging it, critiquing That's it, right. you will be good at this because of this exactly. stat, this exactly. figure. And it's the same thing in, in the NFL. And it's right. really fascinating to think about it and scary. Yeah. And then on another level, because I'm guilty of this too, because I I think it's important to own your shit, mm-hmm. but like the f- the concept of fantasy drafting, like mm-hmm. you go in and you you mm-hmm. select players based on these things, and right. you know, I it's it's really interesting when you start kind of pa- unpacking what you're doing, mm-hmm. and I get like it's it's fun, but I mean there's gambling that's involved with it, there's all sorts of things mm-hmm. that are involved in it, and you're you're then criticizing or cheering for someone based on their ability to stay healthy or not healthy. And when they're not healthy or not productive, they're no value to you anymore. And you don't root for them as a human being. And it's really fascinating to watch that play out in, you know, sports because as as Americans in this society, we are fanatics with our athletics, right? And fanatics in the truest sense. Um, Yeah. I I think that's added an interesting dynamic to the NFL in general. So, yeah, it's come to a point for me where I can't even watch um, football in particular, um, especially if I'm watching football where, you, like I said, the bodies on the field are black. 
at institutions that are predominantly white, overwhelmingly white, and the people who are making money off of the whole production are white people, especially at the college level, yeah. where these players don't even have the rights to collect right. any kind of money for the work that they're doing, and yet they're, they've generated wealth for someone else's pocket. So then thinking yes. about, okay, Jay-Z. Over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. And thinking about someone like Jay-Z now at the head of such an organization, and again, what counts as success within our communities? Right. Um, it, it's success... Like, he's reached that pinnacle, but is it a pinnacle that we even want to reach? Right. <laughs> like, we want to pull that down. You know, and I think of, you know, it's fictional, and I know there are some structural issues with it, but the television show Ballers, not that I even thought about we bring this it. up today. Uh, Ballers. Ballers, yeah. Oh. Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. He, oh, he's the, the okay. main character. Hmm. And this particular season, he ends up becoming, spoiler for those of you that are binging Ballers, oh. which I'm not really sure why that would be, um, but he's now an owner of... Uh, I believe, ironically, the Kansas City Chiefs, <laughs> right? And so, and he is the one person of color in the ownership. And so he's, you know, the, the, the series finale is coming up and he's trying to fix healthcare with, for athletes. And that's kind of his, at least that has been coming out as his thing. But like, it's really fascinating to see the challenge that he gets, even though he's in a position of that's power, right. right? So what happened when you know, you had Obama rise to power as president of the United States. And a lot of folks would say they didn't think about moving issues for black America forward because he was in a position to try to think about, you know, that appeasing white America, Mm -hmm. essentially, right? Right. And so... um, Because America is not black. (laughs) Correct. In a very fundamental way of thinking about it. Built on the backs of... Exactly, but the image right. of what America is does right. not include fit, paying attention to black people because we're no. not even seen as part of the structure of this right. nation in a very serious way. Right. Um, and the nature of the position he's in, I would argue, is to uphold white supremacy, right? If you mm-hmm. think about the way that um, elections have worked and who they've benefited yep. and who's been excluded systematically from it. It makes, us, makes me think back to that question that we were having early on in our podcast about how do you move up through a system that's designed in such a way, and are you able to maintain your integrity as a person, as in terms of your politics, in such a system? Like, is it possible to move up and still be um, committed to justice, yeah. <laughs> right? And there's, and again, we've always been taught that narrative that yes, you can do it, but then we see the examples of people who've moved up into a system, and it's like, Jay-Z will say, you know, I'm in this position where I can now enact change, but we still don't see Colin Kaepernick getting a deal. He still we, doesn't have a job. He still doesn't have a job. We see other athletes also being penalized for taking a similar stance to rewriting rules that say it's impossible for you to do the kind of protest. And so, um, I don't know, I'm kind of pessimistic about that model of success and that individualized narrative. We're going to take a quick break. We'll return back to our conversation in just one moment. This is the point in our podcast where we typically plug a book, a book or an event or something that's going on in our area. But today, Erica and I wanted to take a moment and address something that happened after we recorded, but while we were doing the editing process. At Georgia Southern University this week, um, during a speaking event, uh, Janine Capo Crusay, who is an, who's an author who wrote Make Your Home Among, uh, Among Strangers, uh, was speaking and was interrupted. Um, students at this university were assigned this book for their first year experience. And during her presentation, um, essentially, things started to get very hostile, and, and, and the white students, um, several white students, became fragile as the concept of privilege or white immunity was being discussed. And students started to question whether or not Capo Crusade had the 
authority to talk about white privilege on a college campus, which is ironic um, and just ignorant on their end. So later on in the day, I guess, students began burning her book outside as a, as a show of protest and even showed up at her hotel, which caused her half, having to leave her hotel and go to a different place for safety. Um, this act of fragility on the student's part is problematic, but the university's act to not do anything really about it is also problematic. The university obviously is saying that the students are protected by the First Amendment right. Um, Capo Crusade asked that the students were have engaged in further dialogue on this. Um, and this is just another example of white students who feel like they have or have been given the um, ability to just not interact or not engage with their own uh, privilege or immunity. Even on some level, um, some could say that they've been kind of given this freedom by their by the president of the United States. Many were chanting Trump 2020 uh, as this was going on. So Eric and I thought it would be important to bring this up, but also I think I think as a support for Capo Crusade and her book, buy her book, Make Your Home Among Strangers. Find it on wherever you buy books. Bring people like Capo Crusade to campus. Bring her to campus. Bring other folks of color to campus to engage on these issues. Um, don't stop doing this. If you have the ability to bring in someone and challenge and and dismantle and disrupt um, whiteness on campus, do it and do it regularly and, and find ways to, when students um, start acting in a fragile manner or uh, find ways to really engage and, and, and try to push that because otherwise they're just going to continue to do this. Um, so we just wanted to plug this real quick and, and talk about this event. I'm sure we're going to get deeper into this or bring it up as a, as a separate issue in an additional episode, but we wanted to make sure we addressed what occurred. Keep fighting the good fight, Janine. And now back to our episode. Which maybe takes us to our bigger question for today, right? right? Because our question was going to be thinking about, okay, so you're racist, right? Right. <laughs> We're stuck in a system, right. right? Yeah. What do you do about it? Yeah. What's the and, next step? And, and as we've talked and I've, I've shared in the past is that, that there's this construct of neutrality, right? And so... Being neutral is not the way. So as an educator, you know, we're often taught, well, you have to present facts. Mm -hmm. Well, we all have bias. Mm -hmm. So the facts that you present are biased exactly. anyway. So it's, it's understanding the positionality in which those facts are being presented. But mm -hmm. also, as I, I kind of take the frame as a critical educator. My job is to create and, and build systems and structures within the praxis of education that decolonize mm -hmm. and channel challenge and, and dismantle the systemic issues that are um, have led to a lack of liberatory mm -hmm. uh, acceleration for folks so or access for folks and so I think yeah it's interesting you know Howard Zinn said you can't be neutral on a moving train mm -hmm. which is a really fascinating like if you just visualize what that looks like okay. right and so how do we both challenge our own racism mm -hmm. right and decenter whiteness right. at the same time um, and I think one of the barriers, before we get fully into some work that we, I, I think we're going to go to, I think one of the barriers that happens is you see, and I see it with white folks, is this, this want to, two things happen. Either they shut down mm -hmm. and they get angry. Mm -hmm. So Robin DeAngelis talked about this as fragility. 
or they own it, but then they don't do anything, right? right? And so there's been this great criticism of uh, Robin D'Angelo's work. If, for folks that don't know, Robin D'Angelo is a, is a whiteness scholar, and she does a lot of lectures and tours and makes a lot of money on talking about race and racism, particularly whiteness. Lauren Michelle Jackson, uh, who is the author of the upcoming book, White Negroes When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation, criticized D'Angelo. So she sat in a session with Robin D'Angelo and essentially by the end said, um, you know, it's great that you white folks want to own your stuff, but you're either one marveling at your ability to own your stuff and mm-hmm. then not doing anything or you're being fragile about it, which is what D'Angelo talks. Mm-hmm. So what's next? Right. 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 I would add another thing that's a response. They marvel or they're paralyzed. They say, right. I'm overwhelmed because I, and this came up in a conversation last night. Um, I'm just an individual and I see the enormity of what's going on and then I can't act because I don't think I can have any kind of impact. And we talked with the students last night about this collective action as a way of thinking about our work. Right. Um, but yeah, these are this is kind of an impasse, right? So I'm a racist. Now what do I do with that, right? And how yeah. do I really seriously engage in anti-racist work? <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. One of the pieces that um, I think is really helpful to think about um, is this article that was written in Inside Higher Ed uh, a few years ago by Dr. D. L. Stewart. And Dr. Stewart uh, now, who is at Colorado State University. The article was called Colleges Need a Language Shift, um, and it was in Inside Higher Ed in March of 2017. Um, and Dr. Stewart basically wrote this, this construct for doing, I think, what we're talking about. So one, um, decentering whiteness or decentering mm-hmm. the normalization of the dominant identities within mm-hmm. a, a space or environment and asking questions about equity and justice instead. So, for example, one of the things that I think is really interesting in institutions, organizations, whether they be nonprofits or mm-hmm. private organizations or even higher ed or educational or health, whatever, they always talk about diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. right? So at initiatives within higher ed, we have diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And I would argue that they often fall in diversity or in inclusion. Mm-hmm. And so for an example of that would be diversity asks, it isn't separate. It isn't separatist to provide funding for safe spaces and separate student centers, or isn't it separatist to do that? Equity answers the question: What are people experiencing on campus that they don't feel safe when isolated and separated from others like themselves? Okay. So it's okay. getting at the root. It's getting at the symptoms That's of right. the issues. Um, you know, you and I have talked before about the challenges that I think student groups have on campus or faculty have on campus about. Um, finding space, mm-hmm. right? So if you're in a minority, you're a person from a minoritized identity, how do you find that space and have white folks be like, oh, that's not fair. Yeah. Right? If I congregate, then you call us that's racist, right? right? Okay. So. Um, but this reverse racism claim. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. And it just drives, One of my me, it drives me nuts. Um, I was sitting with Black Student Union um, tabling a year ago, and a white student came up and said, as well, white people are able to come to this, right? I remember the feeling that I had was just trying to understand the source of that question. Yeah. Like, are you really saying that you're able to have a space that we can't invade, but also questioning your right to even have a space? Right. Um, and, I, and it's one of those statements where you have to say, of course you can come, right? And, I, and it's, it's true, you, of course you can come. But the question, like I said, almost assumes that you don't even have a right to exist. Right. And uh, I'm going to challenge you and, and make you open the space up to everyone and not 
not number one address the issues that drive you needing to have a space in the first place. Right, and um, that kind of gets to this this uh, other bullet down inclusion. Ask, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be a great program to have a panel debate Black Lives Matter? We had a Black Lives Matter activist here last semester, so this semester we should invite someone from the alt right. Right. Where justice answers, why would we allow the human humanity and dignity of of people? or our students to be the subject of debate or the target of harassment and hate speech. Exactly. I remember when I first got here um, and I was engaging in, in dialogue with a couple of new colleagues that came in with me, and I remember that year being incredibly stressful because um, these are colleagues, white, one was white male, and, and just the idea of just debating ideas for ideas sake, because that's what we do in academia, but the ideas we were starting to debate you know, language, you know, and who has a right to speak their language in certain spaces. And it started to become like, like exactly what we just said, like this right, I'm debating my right to exist, and it felt dehumanizing. But it's a very common practice in our academic spaces to think idea for idea's sake without thinking of the implications of the, hum- the human beings behind the ideas. Yeah. And only some of us have the privilege of being able to exist outside of the embodiment of the ideas, right? Like right. for some of the, for those of us who are living these, like living, breathing, seeing the repercussions of it, to, to debate it as if it's just something to talk about and then move on to the next topic is so insulting and so painful. Um, and I remember coming from those conversations feeling like a bad academic because I didn't want to, I didn't want to debate this. Yeah. You know, I want to do both sides of the argument because it's not really both sides of my, of, you know, this question of my humanity. Um, and, and this is another way where we think about how academia maintains a kind of um, favoritism for white supremacy. Yeah. Because a person who's living and embodying white privilege doesn't have to feel the pain of that such a debate. Right. right. Yeah, and I think it gets back to you know your, your initial, one of the quotes that you said or one of the things that you said supporting Dr. Moyo's statement of Ubuntu, mm-hmm. of uh, we don't take the time to understand the humanity. Mm. Of, of being able to see each other as humans mm-hmm. and give that human dignity on an equitable level. Right. right. And so I was having, I saw some, it's part of a discussion online, and which is the greatest place in the world <laughs> to have discussion. And the conversation was about um, immigration. <laughs> and the person I was, I was having this talk, this discussion with, was like, well, I'm an ICE agent, or I'm I'm, a, I'm an officer of this, and I go into these detention centers, and they're fine and they're safe, and you know, you your your inflammatory remarks about kids, you know, dying or whatever, um, it, you know, it, it almost like it almost was coming across as this person was articulating as well as the collateral damage. Yes, right. Right, and my point back to this person, or my point w- with them is is that I it's not. I think we're having the wrong discussion because I think the, the, the law and the practice in of itself is inherently problematic mm-hmm. and the fact that we're not using humanity and human dignity and love when we think about making our policies right. we're using fear mm-hmm. and isolationism and whiteness yeah. as a framework for developing our national security mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right and so you this person has bought into that that's right and so the discussion really is not, it, it, we're having the wrong conversation. That's right. That's right. And, 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 I, and I, I have a hard time conversing on that level because it's, mm-hmm. it's not that, 
it's I mean I still fundamentally disagree but it's we're not even having the dialogue on the same thing that's right like so it's kind of like how do you have a humane how do you humanely execute an inhumane policy right right and if you're doing policing or if you're doing the border patrol work and I always I always start thinking about you know especially for you know people of color that work in those fields who are seeing this dehumanization happening in front of them but this is a paycheck it's work that I have to do and, and you you have this question about what's that broader thinking of, okay, is the paycheck worth the reality that I'm creating <laughs> for the people that are suffering from it and the world that I'm participating in? Right. Um, and so you, it, it causes you to like rethink the, the fundamentally the system. And I know people have to work. I know people have to eat. But yet, at what cost? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and who's, um, whose humanity gets reduced because of that? Um, yeah. It's a, it's a, I don't want to say it's a tough situation. That it makes me think it shouldn't be so tough. Yeah. But we give we give an out. Right. I think in our society that says that you know I'm just doing my job. Yep. You know, and I'm gonna go to work. I'm gonna do my thing. Yeah. And uh, just let me be me. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And people have asked me even you know we talked we started this conversation about the debt crisis and the way that the academy is implicated in that debt crisis that disproportionately affects women and, and people of color and working class people. Um, and I have to ask myself that question every day, you know, as, as we see our institution operate in a way that disadvantages the working class or disadvantages people of color, we're, we're creating a degree mill or we're cre creating um, glitzy programs to draw people in, but we don't ask the question of what's the residual effect on their lives if they don't get the jobs that we've promised them. So we've sold it to them as, okay, we're going to give you all these jobs with these degrees, but now you're $80,000, $90,000, dollars in debt before you even get to well, they um, come and don't finish. college. Right. Right. So when we look at the graduation rates exactly. here at the university where we right. work, African-American graduation rates are 44%. Exactly. It's so, it's so deeply scary. And I was saying to a friend of mine, how do I continue to recruit or bring people into a space that I know at the end of the day, number one, I have to protect them from the structural damage that's done because of the structural racism that's going to be right. just hitting them just from the, the existence of this institution. And then on top of that, the burden that they're going to carry when they come out. And I try to be hopeful, right? I, I try to believe that, you know, with the spaces that I create, I'm creating safe spaces. Um, but then again... What is it that we're really doing? Yeah. And and are all of our colleagues on board with seriously thinking about that? And can we use our power to get those conversations going, to make si significant change? Um, at the individual lev level, I feel overwhelmed. But again, as we told our students last night, we have to have to have to do this as a collective action. So the work that you and I do together, like when we're doing this education reform, we're talking about the spaces that we're going to create on campus. Um, it's a kind of collective work, mm -hmm. um, and you use your whiteness, and you use your privilege, and I use my status as a tenured faculty, different kinds of privileges that we use to make different spaces and make different policies. And again, that's part, I think, of the anti-racist work that we're doing, to yeah. figure out how to create that with the, with the positions that we have. But then we get blowback, right. right? The institution doesn't always respond well to our initiatives, or it suddenly doesn't have funding for it. <laughs> Or it suddenly Oof. doesn't, right, yeah. it doesn't have resources for it. Or it yeah. says, okay, you can do that, but you'll have no staff right. to do it with. Or you can do that, but you have to teach 10 classes, you know, <laughs> or right. something like that. Um, and thinking about how we change that. That's an interesting point that you bring up, too, is, is I have found in my time in higher ed, in the last 15 years, 
um, when you have these initiatives and when you have things that people are like, oh, that's would really make an impact on, on restructuring or reshaping the system. Um, the response I have gotten is, that's a great idea. Here's no resources, or here's a person. Mm-hmm. So it's, I guess it's a resource, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not going to build the infrastructure. I'm not going to give you the support. Once you're successful, mm-hmm. we'll then give you the money to fund it. Exactly. Or what often happens is, once you're successful, um, did you get a grant to do the work that you need yeah, to do? Right. It's interesting to me in higher ed that a lot of the work that actually pushes and challenges the structures of who gets to have access here are grant funded and not That's university right. funded. That's right. And even it, those it grants are blow, up. Right. It blows my mind, not really, but it does, that a lot of these programs that exist that are really successful, that really could, that move the needle on making change, mm-hmm. impact people's lives. Um, the university has said, well, the grant goes away, we're sorry, mm-hmm. but we're okay without that. Like, exactly. And what the purpose of, a, in my understanding, of grants are is you build something with a grant, mm-hmm. and then as you have built it, it's the institution's job to say, Okay, this is how we're going to make sure this is sustainable right. because grants are not not supposed to be. That's right, they're not lifelong. But we pretend <laughs> like they are. Yeah. Right, yeah. and so I think that that's one of the really interesting things, and yeah. I think so. Getting back to this, you know, as we close, I think in the space of today, of what does that look like to decenter whiteness um, in our everyday lives collectively, right? And so I think part of it is realizing that we are in this collectively. That's right. We are not individuals. That's right. Um, we have to have some human dignity on some on a, on a macro level. We have to have that human dignity with one another, and we ha- have to constantly ask questions of who benefits. That's right. Who benefits from this decision, this policy, right. this practice, this law? Right. And is it really, you know, I hear the term fair a lot. Is it really mm-hmm. equitable? And I think right. that that's what Dr. Stewart was pushing is when we look at decisions, practices, the way that we are doing our business. Is it equitable? That's right. And is it just? That's right. And I think that that's how you start to, to unravel and decenter exactly. whiteness. Exactly. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. I'll, I'll end it there. The podcast is, there, is done. Is it? <laughs> um, Excellent. Well, that's, I think, it for today. Thanks for joining us on Whiteness in America. Uh, we're, we're happy to have you. If you are looking to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Disrupt Whiteness, and that's spelled with one S at the end. Twitter still hasn't expanded their character links yet for that. Um, or you can email us at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com, or you can go to find us on our website at whitenessinamerica.com. As always, I'm really excited that uh, you were join, joining us today. Our, our viewership is exploding, and I think it's because of you, Dr. Britt. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Nick. Any final thoughts before we... Yeah, no, thank you guys. Thank you guys for joining us on this journey. I think, you know, we keep saying that there's so much work to do. And I hope that each week, you know, you're taking those concrete steps, you know, following the money, following, asking those questions about, you know, is it equitable? Is it just? And doing the best you can in your spaces and in your communities, like in a collective way, to move the needle as much as you can. Well, and I think the other thing is in this, I'm going to speak to the white white folks in the audience, is it's not, don't just be like, oh, I tried. Because that, that is, that's, that's not enough. That's not I, I tried or, oh, I called out myself today. Like, that's, that's a step, but that's not really where we need to go. We need to be better. And so 
Um, really exciting announcement. Our next episode will be a live recording. We're recording a live episode here um, uh, sometime in November. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the date? I think the 13th. November 13th, we're partnering with our Intercultural Center here on campus um, as uh, doing a little lunch and learn. So if you're in the Flint area on November 13th at 1230 and you want to be on a podcast and ask a question, um, we haven't devised the topic yet, but it, uh, I think we'll have something good. But uh, yeah, I'm really excited for that yeah. and nervous that Don't it could be just nervous. be a total train wreck. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Everything is awesome. So we're really looking forward to you joining us. Please come out to that. Give us your opinions. Give us your ideas. And also don't hesitate to give us your opinions online. Let us yeah. know how we're doing and what you want to see from this show. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week.